This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gap Fest for Thursday, December 14th, the Anyone But a Man edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia in the freezing cold DC studios. Uh, and in the freezing cold New York studios, we have June Thomas, a managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. It's actually toasty in the studio, but it's freezing in the streets. Yeah, it's the old freezing saying. in the streets. <laughs> Hosting the studio, freezing <laughs> in the streets. <laughs> um, and Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. So were you guys up late last night watching election results? Did it feel, did you Did you have like the sort of PTSD reprisal of November? Were you like in that moment? My household was kind of in that moment. We were waiting like TikTok for the results of the Alabama election. Yeah, definitely watching it. I, I was watching it via Twitter, mm-hmm. um, and I saw a lot of people tweeting about how they felt uh, triggered by by the the um, needle, the New York Times is election tracking needle, which kind of bounces around. Um, but I I didn't I didn't it it just felt a little different than a year ago. Yeah, thank, thank God. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll talk about it. I feel like that election is sort of the subtext of a lot of what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's get going. We are going to talk about first the uh, Democrats positioning themselves as the party of purity. What do we think of that? Is that a good political strategy? We will discuss. Second, we're going to talk about slack. Does it even the playing field for women? And third, the New Yorker story Cat Person by Kristen Rupenian, which Everyone is talking about. Everyone I know is talking about. Um, it's the story that's captured our imaginations about the state of gender relations today, or maybe the state of dating. I'm not sure. And then in our Slate Plus segment, June, what are we talking about? In our Slate Plus segment, we will be talking about sexy holiday sweaters. If you are not yet a member of Slate Plus and you want to hear that discussion and many other benefits, including ad-free podcasts, you should go to slate.com slash XX plus. All right. Before we get going, listeners, I want to remind you that our next show is our call-in show. We've already gotten a lot of amazing questions, but we would love to hear more from you. Questions you have, is something in your life sexist, you're not sure, or really just any questions you have for us, we will play the question on the air in our next show and answer it. The number is 929-266-8195. That's 929-266-8195. So please give us a call, leave us a message. All right. So let's do our first topic, Democrats as the party of purity. Uh, We tape on Wednesday morning. So, you know, we are fresh from the excitement of the Tuesday night Alabama election, which with its unexpected result. Um, I was reading tweets, getting texts from people, watching on TV. And basically, 
to our great surprise, I, I fully thought that Roy Moore would win, I have to say. But Doug Jones won instead. He's the Democrat. He's the first Democrat to win a Senate seat in Alabama in 25 years. And I think what this does, in a way, this this to me, this Senate race should mean absolutely nothing mm-hmm. because it's Roy Moore and he's in a category of one. You right. know, right. um, it just seems like a return to sanity. But yet it seems to have set off, like, defined the boundary lines in politics in a very clear way. Like, it seems to have pushed the Democratic Party into the position that we can win if we ride this wave of woman anger. Before before we get going on the party of purity, let's just analyze a little bit the election, the Alabama election, what happened and what it means for the future. So let me ask you guys, wh- who pushed Roy Moore over the edge? Like what lessons did the Democrats have to learn from the victory of Doug Jones? Well, there was certainly um, a lot of black turnout and uh, – I think black men went 93% for Doug Jones and black women were a remarkable 98% or maybe not remarkable 98%. Um, white people overwhelmingly voted for Roy Moore. And I think uh, what percent? 62% of white women, I believe, somewhere in the low 60% of white women. Yeah, Moore won white women by 29 points. Right. Yeah. So... Um, so certainly uh, the engine for the Democrats in deep south is minorities. Yeah. The last time we talked about Alabama, we got uh, an impassioned letter from a listener, which I certainly, you know, felt where she was like, I am working, I, a white woman, I'm working my ass off in Alabama, as are lots of people I know for Doug Jones, like don't tar us all with the same brush. And fair enough. But it is still appalling to me that Roy Moore was able to get you know, that it was like 49.9 to 48.4. He got 48.4% of the vote in Alabama. Like that to me is an embarrassment and a shame and all of that. But fortunately, those people like our listener and, uh, you know, worked for Jones. People went out and voted for Jones. And so um, it's a little bit less of a shame and, you know, a little bit of sanity is reigning. But I'm not all that sanguine. It's crazy that a guy like that did so well. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it kind of shows the power of tribalism, right? And that the, the demographic things that we expect people sort of to, to vote with, right? Like you see, you're, you're a woman and Roy Moore is, uh, you know, quite famous for, for being essentially anti-woman in addition to the, um, uh, the, the, uh, his taste in teenage girls, he has said various things about women, you know, like maybe not being able to vote. Um, he, he's not a friend of women. And yet so many of those women, that's not their primary identification when they go and vote. They are voting as, you know, um, probably at this point, their primal tribal identification is as a, you know, a, a Republican of a certain kind, but also, you know, an evangelical, all these other things are just a cultural um, affinity for what Roy Moore represents over what Doug Jones, who is um, pretty strongly pro-choice, what what the difference between those people. And so I think it's just like we expect people to vote with what's most important to us when we vote, but that's not Mm -hmm. what they're going with. And we can't forget that Doug Jones has civil rights history. Yeah. So there's there's sort of a tin, there's there's you know more than a tinge of race in this in this um in this election. I mean as you guys pointed out, you know he had a vast percentage of the black vote and white people voted for Roy Moore. Can we break down the woman vote for a minute? I'm curious about 
white women. Like I had this. Roy Moore did. He did shockingly well with white women. He just did worse with white women than other Alabama Republican candidates. That's what it seems to me the Democrats are focusing on mm-hmm, this morning. Right. Yeah. He won by twenty nine points. More won white women by twenty nine points. But almost certainly, I, I don't have the numbers for how other Republican candidates have done with white women in Alabama in the past. But I presume they got much higher. They won by much higher. Wow, though. I just need to rest my mind on the fact that he won white women by 29 points. That's kind of amazing. Um, That's amazing. Well, and what's it? I mean, black women are the engine of the Democratic Party. And I'm certainly not the first person to point this out. But it is, you know, they're severely underrepresented when you look at candidates, right? Like, I I think there are a couple of ways that Democrats are responding to the events of uh, 2016 and and, you know, one major strain within the party is like, oh, we need to sort of go back and capture the white working class man. We need to, like, run a certain kind of more centrist, um, you know, populist, some some combination of centrist populist uh, white man rather than sort of looking at who actually makes up the real base of the party, uh, which is just an interesting thing. But don't you feel like it's the tactics have shifted now and they're, they're sort of like they're they're tuning in to this idea that that um, the feminist wave is what they want to ride to victory? Well, let we yeah, I think that's a lesson of of what's happening all around us now. Like even in the last week, it seems like the Democrats decide like this, you know, Al Franken being asked to resign. Um I think was actually a real watershed moment mm-hmm. for the Democratic Party in figuring out who, like, what kind of territory they want to stake out in 2018. And he resigned resistantly. I yeah. mean, that's why. That's that's where the party of purity idea came from. He resigned defiantly and resistantly, and he was basically beloved and thought to make a difference. So it was essentially Democrats and mostly Democratic women making a conscious choice that we are going to sacrifice someone who's an ally, who's like, you know, ideological ally um, in order to stand for women, in a sense, and stand against sexual harassment. So it's like a very strong statement. Well, and to have, um, you know, higher ground, like like to, to sort of look at Republicans who for years have framed themselves as, you know, the value voters party, right? Like they, in some senses, have, have been a party that is in a really deep way about sexual purity or, or propriety for so many years. And then if you look at what's happening all around them in the party, um, you know, it's not just the Roy Moore nomination. Um, there are, uh, you know, notably uh, Congressman Blake Farenholt has been accused of sexual harassment and only one person in his party, you know, called on him to step down. Another congressman did have to step down, but it was because he went to the rather extreme place of asking um, some of the women who worked for him to uh be the surrogate for for his wife, who could, was unable to. Wait, why do you say that so hesitantly? That's like my favorite story of the year. That story is so <laughs> insane about Trent Franks. Like, I constantly, first of all, I constantly try and imagine like how he did it and like what logic went into his because he's a Christian conservative brain that he decided like he was going to justify his lust for these two women in his office by asking them to be surrogates and like and make the old fashioned crazy... way. That's the key part. Yeah, like family values story. Yeah, we're calling and, like, it surrogates. The... That's not what it is. <laughs> well, but he also he... like five million dollars. That know. is a hell of a lot of money. I can't tell you what I would do for five million dollars, but. <laughs> 
But right. Yeah, would you consider it? I'd be like, well, maybe. It's $5 million. Would I consider it? I would do it in a heartbeat. Are you kidding me? For $5 million? The old-fashioned way? The old-fashioned way, whatever. God. Oh, God. I'll do the old-fashioned yeah, way every res- day for a year for $5 million. Come on. Wouldn't you? <laughs> no. $5 million? Oh, no. Fucking hell. I would do anything for $5 I'm million. not a high-end hooker, Jim. Everybody's got a price. <laughs> Mine's $5 million. The $5 million almost made me believe his story because, like you said, Noreen, high-end hookers. Like, there's lots of things you can do much cheaper in great secrecy. Totally. So why, like, earnestly proposition a young staffer in your office with this completely absurd, outlandish proposition? We are so digressing, but I can't get enough of that surrogacy story. It's my favorite of all, like, of all the things you think, wow, there's just a lot of just horrible stuff that happens subterranean in this world. Like, that's one of the that's one of the choice ones. I mean, to me, I mean... Obviously, we can't look inside his soul and inside his brain. But to me, that story is more about like some of the people who are in Congress really shouldn't be in Congress. I mean, they should because people have voted for them repeatedly. But like that guy clearly has no place in Congress. His ideas are bonkers. I feel so badly for his wife. Yes, absolutely. Who is being used by him at every turn. Yeah. Yeah. Even at the final turn when he resigned, by the way, he said his wife was ill. Exactly. So he had to resign. Now, maybe his wife was ill. I don't know. But, um, yeah, but I anyway, mean, he said she'd like... been taken to a hospital, which is something that would be really like you're going to make that up. Like, surely even he wouldn't make that up. Yeah. But yeah, he was, he's a total user. But so he so, OK, that's a bridge too far for Republicans. But a lot of other stuff isn't. And so I think for, you know, People like Kirsten Gillibrand, who has, by the way, made sexual assault a major part of her um, platform from almost day one. Um, this allows them to sort of, uh, you know, to, to to call out Republicans for hypocrisy. Whereas and, and by the way, like Franken's a safe seat. That wasn't yeah. a super risky thing. Like if it were in a different kind of a district, it might have been a different conversation. So they sort of sacrificed him personally for the good of the party. And in his resignation speech... He sounded so bitter and angry and like uh, I found his resignation speech actually curdled me on him. Mm -hmm. Um, Before that, I was kind of like, and then I just was so turned off by that speech. Yeah. And I think, too, the the way that he was treated reads differently this morning now that we know the Alabama results, Mm -hmm. Uh, because, you know, there was a lot of really impassioned and really... I think, profound soul-searching last week. I mean, Dahlia Lithwick from Slate, uh, you know, wrote a piece, was on several podcasts and radio shows talking about her feelings about this, of like, it's great to say when they go low, we go high. And I think, I, I don't know, that seems really hard to argue with that as a position. But when it was the prospect of the Democrats pushing out Al Franken, a supporter of women, but with a, you know, a terrible personal... Uh, sin, I guess I'll just call it that. Um, And then the Republicans potentially welcoming Roy Moore. And so that felt just like we can't, you know, we can't go on with this asymmetric, not warfare, but with this asymmetric set of values. But then the fact that Roy Moore was rejected, however narrowly, does make it make it make me feel much, much more positive, which I already felt positive, but now I feel much like it's, Wait, I what feel, do you mean by positive? I feel positive. Re- reass- you- reassured like it wasn't a terrible mistake because I didn't think that morally it was a mistake, but I was worried that tactically it was a mistake because 
yes, it's fine to say that like Franken, you know, will be replaced by a Democrat. But Franken was a really powerful Democrat. He was a very vocal and a very effective ally for women. And it's not just a vote. You also want a voice. You also want somebody who people know, who people listen to. And it takes a while often for senators to make an impression. So, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, we're just going to swap out a Democrat. Right. And so it. I was worried that, that I had trepidation about the Democrats going high when the Republicans were going low. Mm-hmm. And it, now, now that the Republicans don't seem to be going quite so low or not being allowed to go low in quite as badly of like that image of getting rid of Franken and welcoming more. I I don't feel so bad about the U.S. Senate, I guess is what I'm saying. Do you think so? Can we talk about the political calculus for a minute? Because Mm -hmm. I am thinking a lot about this. I mean, if you read the exchange between Trump and Kirsten Gillibrand, he essentially tweeted some insane stuff about her. You know, she's a flunky. Um, She came to my office begging for money and said she would do anything for that money. And then he claimed there was no sexual innuendo to that. I mean, just just like the usual lightweight. Oh, the lightweight. Wait, right, June, the like usual, like the completely classic, like stereotypical insulting female bullshit, right? Especially from a big heavyweight like him. Oh, yeah, it's like a lightweight. He's the president, right? (laughs) So then she, but then she tweets back. Like she's tweeting back, as is Maisie Hirono, who's the senator from Hawaii, in language which is like really taken from language of like sort of college feminism and call out culture and yep. a kind of a, a, a sort of a kind of activist feminist used to be subculture is now pretty mainstream. Mm-hmm. And I found that really interesting, like just the language she used, like he's silencing my voice. And then Ma- Maisie Hirono saying like he's a misogynist, like it's sound, it, it was very like powerful the way they tweeted back. I mean, it is a little Dahlia Lithwick in that, like, they're not taking, like, I'm a senator. I don't, I'm, I'm just going to ignore this nonsense. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. they're punching, he's punching, they're punching back. And it's interesting. And I couldn't tell if it, like, is it strategic? Like, we're just going to ride this really hard. And if it's strategic, is it a good idea? Well, also, Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. tweeted that Trump was slut shaming Kirsten Gillibrand, which is just a crazy moment in, yeah. like, everything. I just, like, uh, I can't picture Elizabeth Warren, like, you know, like at Slut Walk or whatever. <laughs> also, I'm not sure she exactly used it right. right, um, right. But, but yeah, so she, that that's like she's clearly also borrowing the language of sort of college feminism, mm-hmm. as you put it, or a more a younger kind of feminism. Um, is it strategic or will it be effective? Which question was it? I guess I'm asking, does it? Like, are they are they reading this correctly? Like, I I feel, you know, the complete like exhilaration of this moment um, and the feeling that this is unbelievably powerful and it has a kind of civil rights feel like there are just this like power toppling down in a way that feels completely exhilarating and it feels like you should just ride the wave. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I maybe I'm just like I'm just acting asking a tactical question. Like, like, are they reading the moment right? Is it a good idea? We can't know. I guess there's no answer to this question. I think they're reading the moment right. Mm-hmm. How long the moment will last is up for debate. But I, I bet the moment will last at least through 2018. I mean, the question is, OK, so maybe it's a little bit early to be thinking about 2020. But who is the candidate? I mean, I do think we need a person of color at the top of the ticket. It, but it can't just be a person. of I mean, it has to be somebody who connects with people. Um, but I mean, like a Sherrod Brown or a Tim Kaine, I don't think can can generate that kind of enthusiasm. 
Um, and I think maybe an Al Franken couldn't. So uh, I do think that maybe the path to power is 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 by not just kind of saying, oh, thanks, black people for voting for Doug Jones, but like voting for black people. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel like there's a huge energy and momentum and it would be a total mistake and a waste not to take advantage of it. That's one way to look at it. Like there will be momentum, just sheer opposition to Trump. But it just feels like you could have this multiplier effect if you found the right person who could in some authentic way tap into the tap into the moment. I think actually like having a female candidate is going to be more symbolically important than necessarily having if you're if you're just like, you know, in some smoky back room and thinking this out, I think, um, you know, having a female candidate is going to get you farther than necessarily going for a minority candidate. I think just like so much of the energy that we're talking about is uh, driven by women and, um, you know, women, uh, black women will vote for white women. Um, just like historically. And that's that's a lot of who you need on your side. Hmm. So anyone but a man. It doesn't matter if it's a black woman, a white woman. It's just like anyone but a man. Yeah, we're renaming that's our show that. <laughs> <laughs> anyone but a man. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, <clears throat> our next topic, Slack. There's been a few articles written recently about Slack as a gender-neutral zone where it doesn't exactly wipe out gender dynamics, but it allows women to speak up in a way that they're more comfortable doing outside of a live meeting, that it tamps down some of the gender dynamics that quiet women in the real world. So I have to tell you guys, I'm I, I'm a little bit of an anthropologist on Mars here. I don't use Slack that much, but I do have a lot of thoughts um, and have read a lot of sociological research about men and women in the written language and how they use written language. So I'm dubious about this argument. Um, but let's just start by talking a little bit about the company Slack and its aims. Like one of the interesting things is that this is explicit in Slack, the company. They are very interested in diversity and in promoting a more neutral kind of platform, right? It sounds like it. So when um, the founder, Stuart Butterfield, won a big award, instead of going up to accept it himself, he sent up for four black women who worked for the company. He um, and who were executives at the company, right? Yeah, they were. Um, well, I don't know exactly what their position, but they were in positions of power, and they um, and yeah, he didn't just sort of send them up there as tokens. Right, right. <laughs> um, although in some ways he did, right? right like right. a complicated thing. Uh, but but it seems like genuinely um, has made an effort to. Uh, hire and promote women and people of color at the company. So that's the company Slack. Now I realize maybe we should back up even more and explain what Slack is in case people don't use Slack. So June, you want to do that? What is Slack and how do you use it? Slack is effectively kind of the modern version of instant messenger uh, in that it is a more kind of I don't got it. It's an instant messaging service, but it's um, very searchable. There are a lot of chat rooms. Um, you can start channels for topics. You can also 
speak directly to people or you know DM, uh, and and you can sort of set up groups easily, um, so that you can tag people in your conversations. You can upload stuff. You know, you can add gifts to the to you know punctuate whatever it is you're saying. But it's more in the workplace. Like what you guys are describing could be you know. Twitter could be lots of different things. But well, the but point that's is the it's genius, inside work. Yeah, that's the genius of Slack is that it's taken the sort of fun of, you know, online social communication and and brought it to a work environment. Although, I mean, I think that people tend to use the like the paid for version at work and I think it has taken over a lot of offices, but there's a freely available version of Slack that people can use for like social or, you know, interest group uses too. And so I actually am on a whole bunch of slacks about really silly interests of mine so like you actually can use it in a workplace and then there's a kind of less powerful because usually people use the free version for their hobbies so have either of you noticed a difference in gender dynamics as described in some of these uh, articles like a difference in the way that women interact and communicate on slack either with each other or with men well so first we should say that we read a couple of articles that had conflicting opinions on what Slack is doing. Um, one woman uh, argued that Slack is making it easier for women to be direct, right? That like, mm-hmm. with if you're not in a meeting, you're less self conscious. You don't gentle. You don't you know sort of soft pedal things, and you can just be like, "Can you please get me that by three p.m." Um, I have actually anecdotally noticed that that people I noticed it in myself that that um, it's just easier for whatever reason when you're out in front of someone to be polite but direct. Um, and then there was also now that wait. So can you give me an example? I'm really sorry. Can you give me an example of like what is easier for you to do on Slack? Just a kind of sentence or a kind of thing that you would find it, you know, very easy to do on Slack that would be a little harder in real life. You know, like, I don't think that's a very good idea. Um, I might not say that <laughs> quite like that, but uh, to to sort of disagree, um, I think, can mm-hmm. feel easier to just, uh, you know, the other thing that, that this author, the point that she made was that because communication happens so quickly on Slack, it's it's different than email. Like people yeah. want an instant response and you don't. So with an email, let's say if, if you're asking someone to turn something in by X time, you might do some wind up. You might warm them up first. You might be like, it would be so helpful if you could get this in at three. On Slack, because it's, you're going back and forth, you're like, 3 p.m. okay? You know, just like very clear to the point. Right. To me, that's the great advantage of it is that one tends to use it with more brevity. And so that kind of compliment sandwich that you often do in a in an email where like I'm going to say something nice to you then I'm going to you know stick the dagger in which mm-hmm. a great exaggeration and then say something nice at the end which you know may be polite may be you know a, a pleasant thing to do but it's kind of a waste of time and that kind of like folderol around just saying what you really want to say tends to happen less in Slack, I think. Although I I think some interactions I hate when they happen on Slack. So so I'm an editor and I hate when people pitch me stories on Slack because I don't want to give an instant answer. I don't want to give a quick answer. I want to give a thought through answer. And I imagine that's the same in other industries too, where there are some things like quick in the moment things that you want to do quickly, but you might want more time to think. And so in that way, I don't love that, but that's more of a management thing than a gender thing. But so this other woman who works for Quartz, which is a news site, um, argued the total opposite. She argued that, in fact, Slack is exacerbating some of the male-female dynamics that have existed on the Internet for a long time, that, like, women do still feel the need to soften and men have become even more sort of, like, 
just almost cruel in their directness on Slack. Um, what did you guys think of that article? I mean, that's what the that's what the the er, there's. I was just happened to be reading a lot of early research on instant messaging, mm. um, gender dynamics research, which basically mimics what Deborah Tannen, her close studies about spoken word, mm-hmm. which is that in written word, there are just certain ticks and hesitations and hedges that women make on the, in the early days of instant messenger. So women would use I a lot, which would seem to you like narcissistic uber move but it's not it's a move of subjectivity and minimizing and women tend to use a lot of you know i think or um what if or you know words like that which are essentially hedge words mm-hmm. and men wouldn't use those words at all like they would make declarative i shouldn't say at all but much less frequently so they would make declarative statements um so the the gender dynamics in life kind of mimic themselves in the message message dynamics the difference is listening to you guys talk is that work requires a kind of brisk efficiency. It's not Mm -hmm. just about chatting about a topic or sharing your opinion. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just about getting stuff done. So maybe just the need for efficiency allows women to slot into a certain mode. Yeah. I mean, the the chat room that she was describing was a more like, let's kick around ideas kind of Right. It was almost philosophical. Right. And there, the old patterns seem to be replicating themselves in a more sort of task-oriented channel, maybe that would have been different. Yeah. Um, The other thing um, is that I I know here, and my problem with Slack is like I just, like I fear getting sucked in. So so I'm on a lot of Slack channels, but I don't check them that often. There do seem to be like a a nice um, flowering of subcultures. Like if you want to have a side conversation, you know, women of whatever, you can do that too. Like is that a helpful thing? Or do do you guys feel like that just creates a lot of division and distraction i think it can be both right at least in my workplace there have been sort of dust-ups over secret groups that were created to basically talk about other women frankly um and then there have been you know i think I think like I personally um, think it's been great for sort of fellow feeling with my colleagues Mm -hmm. and for kicking around ideas and like the weird side group. Like I'm in a weird side group where we just talk about like the columns of Ross Douthat and (laughs) like and then but we end up having all totally other conversations, you know, and ideas emerge from that. Um, uh, But but in particular, I think a lot of places have women's groups specifically Mm -hmm. um, where women can sort of air uh you know, like talk about stuff that you they might not feel comfortable talking about on the public channel for whatever reason, whether it's sort of like just super gender specific or they f- are able to let out anger in a certain way in a women's group or whatever. I mean, I have a friend who remedied gender inequities at her magazine by creating a Slack group and and asking women to share their salaries. And then she sort of figured out that all the women were getting paid a lot less than all the men. And so that seemed to me like a nice, powerful example of how you can use a Slack. As Although a I don't, that doesn't actually seem like something that could only have happened on Slack. I mean, she was basically asking for a piece of information. That, do you think they wouldn't have given it in any other forum? I would, I would find it easier to tell someone my salary not face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Right, r- right, 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 you know? right. And it does seem like Slack has in many ways, you know, reduced our hideous email load. So I suppose, yeah, you know, and yeah. it just also feels a little bit more fleeting. Mm-hmm. But I think it does sort of empower people who are not in positions of managerial prominence mm-hmm. to, to sort of band together and, and talk about things. And, and 
Um, that's a great example, Hannah. I'm pro Slack. Yeah, yeah, I, I, mean, I love it too. And I, you know, and I choose not to take part in. You know, I understand what you're saying about distraction, Hannah. But when, but when they're the groups that are optional, that you know, that are not core to your work purpose. I mean, it's very easy to opt in or opt out. I really don't take part in many, you know, in things like discussions of music or food or things like that. Not because I hate those things, just because like that feels like a distraction to me. But you know. But other topics I, I love and I'm probably a little bit too uh, yakky in them. Um, one thing I will say is that I there's one place where I have seen what we might call typical gender dynamics play out. And that's when some. So one thing that happens with Slack is that like you get to know personalities and people like slip into certain jokes or certain, you know, ways of, of, of um, you know, expressing themselves kind of callbacks, which. In, which require you to understand that person and know that person. And so I do think it's hard for new people to to kind of adjust to Slack culture in a way that it's not necessarily to adjust to like email culture. We Email culture tends to be pretty consistent. Uh, but Slack culture, I think, is more has more of a, a learning curve and a more of an adjustment to personalities. And I think when new women come into a Slack group, I think, it, or in a, a Slack environment, that I think it's easy for them to um, perceive jokes and so on at, in a gendered way, because that is, you know, the lens by which we often see the world. So I have seen kind of that causing a problem because there's there's like this, there's a vibe and a kind of a we know each other kind of thing that can be hard to read when you're coming in from the outside. On the other hand, it can make it easier to get a grasp on the social dynamics yeah. of the office. It's literally all laid out for you and yeah. you can sort of figure out, okay, these people think the same way. These people are friends. This is like, this is how people talk in this office. Where And it can otherwise take a long time to figure all that out. Yeah, that's true. The thing I really like about Slack, but haven't been, even though I don't do it that often, is like workplaces used to be more chatty. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure June, you remember this. Like when I first started in, you know, I was working at the New Republic, like we talked a hell of a lot to each other. And then you walk into a workplace and it's like so, you know, people don't really talk to each other that much because yeah. they're sitting at their computers. So I feel like Slack has revived a kind of office camaraderie in a really nice way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with that. And I think too is more I mean, I don't know if it's typical, but as more people work remotely or, you know, uh, companies have people in different offices like there are people who in say in our dc office who until quite recently because of you know some changes in my work like i talk to them all the time and so if you report to someone who's in a different city or you work closely with somebody in a different city really now it doesn't feel that way you don't see their face maybe but you can really have this very kind of close communication in a way that really wasn't possible before, especially if, like me, you hit the telephone. Well, and flexible workplaces benefit women, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Listeners, if you have any interesting Slack experiences or Slack thoughts and insights about how Slack is used in your workplace and whether the gender dynamics of life are replicated in Slack or show up in some sort of slightly different but interesting way, please let us know. You can email, you can email us at doublexgabfest.com at slate.com or go onto our Facebook page, Double X Gab Fest, and let us know your thoughts. Let's go on to our next topic, a story in the latest New Yorker 
by Kristen Rapenian called Cat Person is about a date gone wrong. It involves a woman named Margot who's in college and a man named Robert who meets her at her job at the movie theater. They text for a while, then they go on a date, and it just doesn't go well. And for whatever reason, which we will discuss today, people have really uh, attached to this story as encapsulating the dating dynamics of this moment. It's been the number one read story in The New Yorker for the entire time that it's been up. And I will say that everybody in that way that I know has been talking about it. Like, I've gotten emails about it. All my friends are talking about it. Uh, Do you guys have that experience as well? Noreen, do you have the experience of people in your office just hotly debating the meaning of cat person. Yeah, we our office holiday party was a couple nights ago and I was in like five different conversations <laughs> about it and one of which we all went around and said what made us most sad. Oh my goodness. Cat person. So, uh yes. Wow. Topic of much discussion. Big slack. So combo. listeners, if you haven't listeners if you haven't read it yet, um maybe you want to pause and go read it. It's, you know, it's a, it's a short story length story. Uh, so it won't uh it won't take you forever, but it is uh you can read it online or you can read it on the New Yorker and then join us for the discussion or just listen to our discussion. Noreen, did you feel like I'm 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 highlighting Noreen because she's <laughs> dating June, not because I'm leaving you out. I so Noreen, when people talk to you about it, did what what was it what what was your sense of why what resonated with people? Was it, did people feel like it actually captured something about texting while dating, something about sex while dating? Like, what was it that so spoke to people? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, different people responded to different things, but but certainly the, the, the freshness of this came from the role of technology, right? The way that, um, the way you date now, so often uh, you know someone more over text than you do in person. And certainly in the early days of a relationship, you're sort of filling in the pieces with your imagination and, and like waiting for the text to come and analyzing them. And that can be um, exciting and it can be kind of horrible. And <laughs> and the way that like your thinking shifts throughout, um, I think. So I think a lot of people responded to that. Um, and then the sex scene, I think, uh, was done really smartly, where she sort of talks about, you know, this is essentially from the point of view of the woman, but but you see, you you are able to empathize with the man. Um, but a lot of people talked to me about the sex scene, and it's sort of like porn inflected. Like mm-hmm. the the man is clearly, you know, imagining himself in some scenario that he's in some ways, um, you know, constructed probably by watching porn and the woman gets off as imagining herself as the beautiful woman that the man must see. Um, and, and, and so that was sort of like, okay, the way that, that media plays into already, you know, the complicated dynamics of what turns people on. Um, and then the, the post breakup sort of denouement, Mm -hmm. which, um, I hated the very end of the story. I thought it was very pat and took it in a direction that like, uh, in some ways, undermined um, the subtlety of the rest of it, but uh, but the sort of way that after you've broken up with someone that you in in like a very short term relationship that you don't know what went wrong, mm-hmm. and she captures that really well. This and then like the temptation of having like a way to contact them, like right, it's like right at your fingertips, and the man sort of like exercises that in a bad way. What did you guys find most striking about the story? Did it feel, you know? Did it feel um, of this time to you or sort of timeless with with sort of modern updates? I will say what I found the saddest, which is 
<clears throat> maybe timeless, but the 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 extreme not knowing each other while knowing each other. Yes. Mm-hmm. I know that's a phenomenon. And I know there's a projection involved in all kinds of dating. There was a projection and there was a version of projection involved in the 1940s when <laughs> someone when you would know someone just by their symbols, you know, just sort of what they look like or what little things they said in letters or you saw them. So there's always, you know, and then you would doodle like you know, how you would get married to. It's like projection is part of dating, but I think the trick in this, the, the sort of the, the deceptive nature of projection just hit me so hard the way you fantasize an entire world around mm-hmm. a person. And it seems like, you know, some of the fantasy takes place while she's at her parents' house. And so um, and so she she's kind of, I don't know, there was just something like really moving about that, that she's texting with him and her parents are asking her, who are you texting with so much? And that kind of solidifies his status as her boyfriend. They haven't even gone on a date yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think she really she really well captured the complete alienation and kind of way that you can trick yourself or your consciousness can trick yourself into thinking you know a lot about this person, you're intimate with this person, when you actually know absolutely nothing about this person. My mother-in-law said something so interesting, which is she's said, uh, you know, this this is like an argument for kind of marriage arrangement or something. <laughs> like like now you understand why people kind of why why the act of setting someone up who, you know, where you know the family and you know basically what world they come from is helpful because those those are real things, you know? I mean this person, the man especially, is 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 portrayed like you have no idea about him. You know, you don't even know if he has cats. Well, I was going to ask his you name guys, is cat person. Do you think he has you know? cats in the end? <laughs> that was another topic of much office discussion. Did the cat person have cats? I think it's a proje- like a pure projection. Like he's <laughs> cat person is another thing where like we there's so much clever gender stuff going on about the story and I completely flipped about the last line. In fact, I just I flipped like in the middle of the night last night when I was thinking about it and mm-hmm. I had a whole different view of it, but and we'll talk about that in a minute, but um but um I think you, you know, how much do you project on the idea of the cat lady and like what it mm-hmm. means to live alone with your cats? Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so I think she she's sort of playing with us like, well, a man at home with his cats, like, what does that mean exactly? And then he forgets that he told her that he had cats, even though they had this whole joke going with the cat. There's so much going on with the cats, even though even though like. They had a whole thing going with the cats, like a whole flirty thing, mm-hmm. and and he doesn't even remember kind of that they had that in the moment. Um, so 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 it's like everything's lost, and then the cats are named after these Japanese manga characters, and so so you think a certain way about him, like he's a guy who reads manga and what goes along with that. Anyway, um, the alienation the alienation and kind of trickery and loneliness of thinking that you know the person and you don't was what made me the most sad. See, it's it's interesting, Hannah, because, yeah, I mean, I definitely it feels like this story is about projection and about how we build up stories about people in our heads. And I did feel like the use of kind of modern technology makes it sound old, but like the way we communicate now does definitely, you know, enhance that. But I wonder, that didn't make me feel sad because when... Margot is at home with, you know, on break with her parents and she's having this texting relationship with him. Like she really enjoys it. She's not. Yes, she's telling herself these stories and telling her parents about this guy she really likes, who's, you know, who we know she doesn't actually know. But she knows a part of him. She knows those texts. She finds those texts funny and um, and satisfying in some way. So I don't think we should dismiss the text as as kind of a 
you know, some a, a bad story that she's told herself. That's real, but it's only a part of their compatibility. Like they're very compatible by text, but in person, not so much. In part because they are much more compatible in theory than in practice, but that's still a form of compatibility. And I'm not sure too that he forgot about the cats because I believe when he took her to his home, he said, "Oh, I have cats." Um, whether he did or not is different, but uh, you know, yeah. it's like it, there's some of these things are lies and and things that we always try to like present a part of ourselves to make someone attractive to us or to make someone attracted to us, but they're not necessarily lies exactly. It's just like putting your best foot forward. Right. She was able to get to a place of more intimacy and closeness with him at a distance than right. actually after having spent time with him and slept with him. Like actually you, you don't see the content of their dates so much. You see the sort of negotiations around like moments when, when she felt embarrassed for herself or embarrassed for him. Yeah. And you see the negotiations around like, you know, whether she's going to sleep with him or not, but you don't, you don't like learn in the way that if you spent three hours with someone, you would learn a certain amount about them, you know, right. but you, that I think is a sharp way that the writer, writer helps you feel how, how lonely it can feel on a date where you're not connecting. I want to say too, I mean, just to mention that this is a dirty story. I mean, it's, a, <laughs> it's essentially true. it's a story about bad sex, but it's still a story about sex. I mean, as a, that I think is a good part of the reason that it's done well. I mean, I don't generally read the fiction, honestly, in The New Yorker, so I don't know how many of these of the stories that they publish involve sex scenes, but this is a pretty, um, again, not particularly sexy, not but sexy, still, yeah. you know, like, you know, you're talking about, you know, rumpy pumpy and, <laughs> and that's, you know, who was, who doesn't want an excuse to talk about a sex scene? Yeah, and people really, one sort of set, I think it went viral for a few different reasons. One, because it was, I think, a good story. Yeah. And two, because then it became a conversation about, you know, about why we're talking about Cat Person. And yeah. then all the think pieces landed. And I just saw today that The Cut uh, interviewed nine or like six cats on video <laughs> about Cat Person, which is sort of like, I hope the end of it. Um <laughs> But the third reason is... What did you think about the consent, like the cons- what she, the the implications for consent? You know, she was consenting, but then she didn't want to have sex anymore, but it was too much effort. Um, and she was kind of image managing, even in the moment when she decided not to give consent. She wasn't exactly... You mean to give consent? She did give consent, but then she didn't want to be having sex anymore. But in that moment, she didn't stop having sex, mostly because she didn't want to be the kind of person who would stop having sex. It was it was not about the usual thing we talk about, which is I'm going to hurt his feelings or, you know, um, being kind or anything like that. There were other moments like that. But in the in that moment, it was about not wanting to be the kind of person okay. who, as she put it, orders and orders something in a restaurant and then returns it. it. It was about not being she didn't want to see herself as a petulant person, which is a slightly different reason than than we usually talk about in, in consent. To me, that was a part of the kind of nuance of the story. I mean, it, it didn't seem to me that she had withdrawn her consent. It was just the fact that she was able to reveal the processes that were going on while she was having sex, perhaps because the sex wasn't all that good, that she knows that, okay, if if this had started a few minutes later, maybe it wouldn't have started. But I don't think she ever, it doesn't seem like she really like she doesn't truly want to stop because it feels like she could. Um, but I think it's just a kind of a very telling way about how, you know, how nuanced 
the nuanced ways that people think about what's going on while it's going on. But it didn't seem like she was having, you know, that she was withdrawing consent at any point. Yeah, I didn't read this as a story about consent because actually like a few things happened that I think were just made it so clear. Like they go back to his uh, apartment and instead of sort of like fooling around and then it progressing, they like both take off their clothes. Like it's like sort of just like, okay, we're we're doing this. Um, And... To me, the the smartness about it, and I think part of the reason why it did connect with so many people and go viral, is that that it like was about what a lot of people have experienced, which is like bad but consenting sex, and that's mm-hmm. what you're not sort of allowed to complain about. And that's sort of one school of thought is that like because we don't allow people to to discuss the like the the um, isolation or or badness of this kind of encounter, then they might criminalize or like say, oh, I I did you know that that's one theory that people you know tend to anyway. I don't want, I don't want to go. I don't want to. <laughs> you mean that, that she would she would look back at this and think of this as a non consensual encounter or no, a no. form of assault I don't because think... her emotional alignment was that she did not want to be having sex, but in fact she didn't object in the moment. Well, not exactly this kind of an encounter, but but um, something similar to that. I think some people have made that argument. That's a sort of a separate conversation. I think that what people. What a lot of people were doing with this story was measuring their own experiences next to it. And the word relatable was thrown around a lot. Like, I found this relatable. I didn't find this relatable. Like, I had super interesting conversations with men who were like, I recognized myself in that. Um, Maybe not my current self, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, the the person I was before I met my girlfriend or like whatever. Um, and, And there was empathy on, like, it's weird the way that she... Weird and smart, I think, the way that she tells it all through the woman's eyes. But but you do get this sense of sympathy for the man at certain points, um, even when the woman isn't necessarily feeling that way. Mm-hmm. Until the end, of course. So, until the end. So let's talk about the end. Um, <clears throat> Noreen, you seem to have strong feelings, which I used to share until the <laughs> middle of the night last night. But why don't you say your strong feelings and then... Well, so the, in, at the end of the story, um, she runs into he. She sees him. She's their friends at a college bar. She, you know, they've te- her her friend had actually sent him quite a cruel breakup text. Like, I, you know, basically, I don't want to see you anymore. And he's drinking alone at the college bar, which is sort of an, a, like a sort of, you know figure of pathetic loneliness. Is just alone, surrounded. He's a thirty four year old man surrounded by college kids, and um, she sort of runs out once she sees him, surrounded by her friends, surrounded by her hiding friends, the, inclu- hiding her, including a guy. And um, he sends her a text afterwards, and is essentially like, "It was nice to see you. You looked pretty." And then it sort of devolves right like levels of devolvement like so then he says um you know that that guy that you were with are you dating him like there's a moment in um when they had sex where he's like have you ever done this before because she's a 20 year old college student and she seems to have recoiled at something he's done and and then in the text exchange she's like he he's like oh were you so horrified because you like fuck so many guys or something are you you know are you fucking that guy are you fucking him right now and then the thing ends with um, the story ends with him just saying whore. Um, and so he's gone from being sad and lonely that she, you know, had and wondering what had gone wrong to just like projecting onto her. Um, you know, in the beginning of the story, it's a projection of happiness, relationship, connection. And then it's a projection of anger and assuming that she is, you know, this this bad thing. And I just it felt like. 
um, all the complexity and subtlety and back and forth of the previous um, whole story were boiled down into this sort of like think piece punchline, like men are bad and they, you know, they, they like hate you if you don't have sex and they hate you if you do have sex and they just hate you. Um, and you could see something curdling that way, but it just, it like, it felt like, a like, um, you know, I want them to hear me all the way in the cheap seats kind of thing. Hmm. You know, that's what I thought. And it really, like, it really, it kind of rattled me that last line when I read the story, because I, I kind of projected it onto our whole culture. I was like, oh, no, this is the black and white world we live in. Like, we can sustain a kind of grayness and empathy and kind of a vision into each other's souls for about half an hour. And then <laughs> we will always punctuate and land with whore. And that's where we'll end it. And then I went through a phase of thinking, well, no, this is just revenge. Like, you know, in the old, in the sort of John Cheever and even Norman Mailer stories, because they were written by men and the men were controlling the pen, they were the authors, you would have a certain sympathy for women. Like you were, they're, they're you know, amazing writers and they would, they would draw the portrait of women kind of in a way that you could you could understand and relate to, but ultimately it's a man's perspective. Like ultimately the man's view wins. So then I thought, oh, maybe that's what that last line is about, like sort of giving giving the final view back to a woman author uh, and turning the tables that way because the woman is in college, whereas it seems like the man is a loser. Like she may have lost in the sexual encounter, but it seems like in the big broader world – like she's the more successful human. Um, she's surrounded by friends. She's in college. Like it just seems like you know she she's got the she she owns. Well, that's the narrative I, in a way. That's interesting. I mean, that's also like a projection of hers that you know that someone who lives alone and goes to the movies alone is a loser. And yeah, um, I don't know that that's you you know you don't know a ton about him and like what his friendships. I mean, you do see that image of him at the college bar alone, which is a sad moment. And trying to impress her with college stuff. But the last thing I want to say is like, then I realized, well, isn't this just saying that horror is as much kind of false in a projection as everything else? Like, it's just a moment, just like everything that happened between them and sex is just a moment and everything kept shifting and sliding horror. Why would horror be more definitive than any other thing in the story? Just because it's the last line. Yeah, it just felt like... Um was like he'd yeah i suppose i suppose i could argue myself into that that like um you know you're back to the depersonalization and all of a sudden she's not a real person in front of him he's essentially like behaving like an anonymous troll on the internet and just like calling her a whore like it does feel like he it's sunk back into to a textual relationship and instead of being the witty this is my best self one it's like here's what i really think of you but the textual relationship was false like that's the point of the story so then this text would be no more real or false no less fleeting than any other text that passed between them it was just a moment he was probably drunk and pissed off that he had been left out mm -hmm. and so he called her a whore and then the next morning he would forget about it all right. Well, listeners, if you relate it to anything, particularly in cat person, and especially if you have views about the last line, I we really want to hear them. So email us doublexgabfest at slate.com or go onto our Facebook page and tell us what you think. All right. Let's do our recommendations. June, you first. Before I get to my recommendation, I just want to put in a plug for another Slate podcast, Working. It's a long running series about jobs and how people spend their working lives and what they think about what they do and why. And the current 
host is Jacob Brogan. He's been doing it for a couple of years now. And right now, uh, we're in the middle of a really interesting season, which is about LGBTQ jobs. Jacob has spoken with a drag queen, Ms. Cracker, uh, who has been a guest on the X Gab Fest, and that was an amazing episode. He's also spoken with a queer theorist, a bespoke tailor, a gender reassignment surgeon. And next week, the guest is Samuel R. Delaney, the amazing sci-fi writer and writer generally. So please tune in to Working. You'll find a new episode every Sunday. So like I think most people I know, I have been watching The Crown since it uh, became available last Friday, December 8th. And it's a soap opera, but it's a soap opera with a few like vague historical uh, tones and historical storylines. And Vanessa Kirby is so fantastic as Princess Margaret. I think we all want to be Princess Margaret, while many of us know that we're really Elizabeths. And Claire Foy is so fantastic as Elizabeth. I just, as with most shows, I could like, I just pretend that the men aren't there. Uh, But the women of the show are so fantastic. And I just, I'm not going to claim it's the greatest show ever, but it's really, really watchable. And I'm just loving it. Cool. I'm not saying anything. (laughs) You hate it? I really do hate it. But David likes it. It's a split in our household. Interesting. Whether it's delightfully watchable or or kind of soap operatically unwatchable. Nothing wrong with soap operas. That's true. All right. Well, I am going to recommend the Jonathan Goldstein podcast, Heavyweight, which is a new Gimlet. Po- it's not new Gimlet podcast. I just have been have been binge listening to Heavyweight, which I think is so great. It's kind of a genius little construction of a podcast where he goes out and solves people's problems. And so you come to him with a problem that you've had for a long time, like in one case, why was I kicked out of my sorority? Um, in another case, you know, who was that guy who hit me on a car and kind of ruined my life and sent me on a new trajectory? And so he helps you hunt down and find those people. And he's just hilarious and charming, as he always has been on the radio. But I just think that Heavyweight is like a, a perfect little gem of a universe he's created with so much stakes and momentum. And it's so funny. And I just love it. Noreen. Um, first, this is not my real endorsement, but I just want to say that I've watched a few episodes or a couple episodes of American Vandal, mm. and three out of three of your feminist podcasters agree that this show about dicks is really funny. Um, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and then my real endorsement is Tina Brown's The Vanity Fair Diaries, wow. um, which was just super fun to read. Um, so it's a written um, – she, she was – in her early 30s or 30, 29, 30, when she took over Vanity Fair, she'd come over from England and she kept, well, she allegedly kept this diary that was super detailed. Um, I suspect that she, you know, scribbled some things down and really went back and constructed a narrative over it now when she went back and did it. But it's full of 80s gossip. And um, if you're a magazine dork like me, like sort of how she thought about putting together Vanity Fair, um, what it was like to be a woman in that big of a job, um, and it's just like really fun, you know. So uh, whatever the winter equivalent of a beach read is, it's a fireside <laughs> read. That's great. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you, as always, to our wonderful producer, Verlyn Williams, and our production assistant, Daniel Schrader. Listeners, please go onto our Facebook page. We love hearing from you. We love hearing your comments, your suggestions. We love it when you argue with each other and when you argue argue with us. It's facebook.com slash doublexgabfest. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and we will be back in two weeks. Hey. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.